How many of you guys love discipline? Okay, a few people. All right, three, three of you. Kudos. Everybody clap for them. All right, way to, way to be awesome. For the rest of us, okay, um, we got to really strive and work at even just liking discipline in any way, shape, or form. But there are spiritual disciplines that, though maybe challenging to some parts of us, are also incredibly rewarding, very fruitful, refreshing, and beneficial for our lives. Christians throughout 2,000 years have been practicing certain spiritual practices, spiritual disciplines to commune with God, to be intimate, to grow more into the likeness of Jesus. We see Jesus himself practicing certain disciplines in his life as he was close and intimate with God, as he learned to obey God, as he was perfected in his obedience. To begin this series, we're going to start with perhaps the most central of all spiritual disciplines, prayer. Prayer in the New Testament, either in language or in concept, occurs over a hundred times. This has been the primary way that Christians have connected with God throughout the centuries in the history of the church. You know, most Christians throughout history didn't have access to the Scriptures, right? They would have heard them. They would not have owned them. They may have looked upon them occasionally, certain parts of the Scriptures, seen this letter, saw this um, person who brought this writing to their community. They may have heard it or seen it, and then it would have gone on. The idea of everybody laying their own eyes on the Bible for themselves, which is a thing that we like to say here in our church family, is very recent in church history, really since the printing press, right? So for the last four or 500 years, many Christians, as literacy rates have increased across the world over the last several centuries, we all have access to this. That also creates some problems, right? Because we all read it, and we all take away different things from it. But for Christians throughout at least three-quarters of the history of the church to date, they relied heavily on prayer as their primary modality of relating to God, of having a relationship with God, and learning how to have a relationship with God together as a community. Prayer was central, and it was the central practice of their faith. Let's look over... To Luke chapter 11. This will be where we begin. But today, we could talk a lot about prayer in many different facets. We could talk about different types of prayer. This could be an entire year-long series in and of itself on prayer, right? There have been countless pages written on the topic of prayer. We could talk about prayers of intercession, of worship, of thanksgiving, confession, etc., but for today, I just want to focus on three things having to do with the spiritual discipline of prayer. The first and foremost, prayer is learned. Prayer is not an innate behavior. We don't come out of the womb as prayers. We learn to pray. The second thing I want to look at is that prayer for the Christian is to be accompanied with righteousness. That those who would speak to God would do so out of a heart and a lifestyle that is consistent to surrendering to God and obeying Him. And then we'll close 
as we look at a parable of Jesus, when he taught about the heart of God and the need for us to persevere in prayer. Luke chapter 11. As we begin, Foster quotes that of all the spiritual disciplines, prayer is the most central because it ushers us into perpetual communion with the Father. That comes from Celebration of Discipline. If you guys want to grab yourself a copy, it's a great companion, I think, to some of the things that we're going to be discussing over the next couple of months. In Luke 11, Jesus is teaching on prayer. This is often referred to as the Lord's Prayer. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place, verse 1. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Then Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend. And you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children and I are in bed. I can't give up. I can't get up and give you anything. There's that cynicism that Mark was just talking about, right? That guest of yours is your problem. Don't come bothering me with your issues. See, should have had bread, just like I do. You were lazy. You weren't on top of it. That's your problem. He says, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, some friend that is, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. Have you ever been bothered to the point where you finally gave in because you just wanted to stop being bothered? Has any parent ever done that with their child? (laughs) So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. I caved in and bought remote controllers for video games this Christmas. I was bothered. And now I'm having to stand my ground to not let him play video games every day. Lord, what have I done? Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a remote control, I mean a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, Lord knows that's true, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask of him? This prayer in the beginning, often called the Lord's Prayer, is recited verbatim by Christians all over the world throughout all of church history. And of course, we can do that. But I believe Jesus is teaching more than a simple few lines for his disciples to memorize and recite. He's teaching about a paradigm, a perspective, a worldview, about who God is, about who we are, 
and about who other humans made in the image of God are and how prayer intersects with all of that. So I want to highlight four basic themes or ideas that we see here in the Lord's Prayer in verse 2 through 4. First, Jesus begins with referring to God as Father and that his name is great, that God's reputation and standing is great. So this introduces an idea for us as we pray, that we begin in a posture of humility, recognizing our own lack of greatness and that the only truly great one is God himself. Jesus teaches his disciples to pray from a posture of humility. Unlike the parable of the Pharisee who is praying at the temple next to the tax collector and says, Lord, thank you for not making me like him. What's Jesus' point there? It's very connected to this, that when we pray to an almighty God, it's not to be done in haughtiness, in arrogance, or pride, or looking down on another image bearer of God. That is how we begin prayer, from a posture of humility. Second, Jesus says that we should pray for God's kingdom to come. And of course, in Matthew's version of this Lord's Prayer, there's some more language, and each of these concepts are filled out a bit more. But that we should pray for God's kingdom to come. And of course, in this moment, the disciples would have thought that what Jesus meant was that the messianic kingdom foretold by the Old Testament prophets was going to come and it was going to look like a conqueror who would liberate them from the oppressive rule of the Roman Empire. And so similar to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, Jesus says that we should seek the kingdom above all else. And of course, they would learn through Jesus' life what that kingdom coming, what that messianic age would really look like. It would not look like a conqueror riding in on a white stallion with armor and weaponry. But rather, it would look like a Messiah coming in on a colt, on a donkey, being led to his slaughter while he's hanging from a tree saying, Father, forgive them. This is the kingdom come. Jesus says we're to pray for that kingdom to come. But the question remains for us, do we want to also follow him up onto that cross and say, Father, forgive? Or do we want the kingdom to come with weaponry and armor? with victory over our foes. And of course, Jesus promises that that victory will come ultimately, but that we are to follow him in this act of sacrifice, in this act of love and not vengeance. He also says that we should pray that each day our daily bread is given. And this language here can either mean today or tomorrow. So Jesus is talking about that not only today's bread, but tomorrow's bread is given to us. This is a plea for God to supply our needs, both now and in the future. This could be physical needs like bread and physical sustenance and health, but also spiritual nourishment as well. Jesus says that we're to pray, again, from a posture of humility, recognizing our need 
our need for everything, both from spiritual life and health all the way down to physical life and health, the food that we eat, the air that we breathe. I believe that this part of the Lord's Prayer is perhaps one of the things that is so difficult for us in our culture. Why? Because we are able to provide so many of our needs for ourselves, or so we would think. In 21st century America, we have giant boxes of food that refrigerate themselves. Just think about that for a minute. We can freeze food for months on end. That is like an unbelievably new invention across human history. Do you know how precious ice was in the ancient world? Unless, of course, you happen to be, you know, a native person in Alaska or something, then ice was not so rare. Fire would be very rare. But if you were in the geography of Jesus and the ancient peoples of the Bible, ice would have been so rare, only the richest of the rich, only royalty would have probably ever even seen it. And every single one of us has at least one of them in our house. I got two. My house came with one. They had an extra freezer and refrigerator in the, in the garage. And they're like, oh, well, do you want to? We'll just leave it. We, we can't take it. They're downsizing. I was like, sure. What did I do? Go buy more food to fill it. Jesus says that when we pray, we're to recognize and embrace our need. My refrigerator, by the way, in the garage is plugged into an outlet that often trips. And so if I'm not careful, I have to check that thing because sometimes it'll stop working. And then all my food will be ruined. And I'm like, Lord, give me today's bread. He continues on and he says that we should ask for forgiveness and that we also should forgive everyone else who sins against us. Christians don't earn their forgiveness by forgiving other people. Instead, Christians who have embraced God's forgiveness demonstrate that they have embraced God's forgiveness by being willing to forgive other people, by being active in our hearts and lives to forgive others, to not hold grudges, and to even love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. When we do this, we don't earn God's forgiveness. We demonstrate that God's forgiveness is real in us. And Jesus does use it as a litmus test, that if you do not forgive your brother, Jesus' brother James would later go on to say this in his letter as well, that you can't say you love God and yet hate your brother or sister. If we don't forgive our brother, if we don't forgive our sister, and who is our brother? All image bearers of God. Jesus says that we are to forgive other people because we believe that we have been forgiven. Not because we deserved it, but because God loved us. And so we are willing to love like him. Think for a moment. Is there somebody that you need to forgive? It could be your spouse. It could be your child. It could be your boyfriend or girlfriend. It could be your boss. It could be the curmudgeity old 
something or other down the street who doesn't like you walking on their grass or whatever. Could be the bear that keeps ransacking my garbage can. I don't know. But if there is someone that comes into your mind that you need to forgive, Jesus connects this closely with what it means to even talk to God, to commune with God, to have a relationship with God. We must be willing to forgive others. And for me, what has been helpful is that when I'm struggling to forgive other people, I'm struggling to remember and believe in God's forgiveness of me. That's where I start. I want to encourage you to start there, that to forgive other people isn't an act of just simple willpower, right? Some scars are so deep, we cannot will ourselves over them. But when we come to the foot of the cross, that God would die for us, when we didn't deserve it, while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly, Paul would say in Romans 5. It's there, from that place, that we believe and embrace God's forgiveness that that forgiveness can flow through us and we can forgive others when they don't deserve it. True forgiveness isn't about overlooking or minimizing or saying that that didn't happen or doing some sort of like, you know, psychological gymnastics on ourselves to believe that forgiveness isn't needed. Biblical forgiveness is about embracing and recognizing the wrong and the atrocity and the gravity of this thing that has caused damage and hurt and pain and being willing to say, I have done the same. I put Jesus on the cross. My sin has caused damage and pain to God and to other people too. And since God is willing to forgive me, why would I not be willing to forgive? This is the place that helps me to find a forgiving heart. So Jesus is asked to teach his disciples to pray. And we have to be careful not to think that prayer is this sort of cosmic slot machine where we get rewarded with whatever we want when we pull the lever correctly. Jesus, of course, says that we will receive when we ask, but later his brother, James, in James chapter 4, says that they didn't have when they asked because they didn't ask with right motives. So Jesus isn't trying to say here that prayer is a way to turn the almighty God into our personal genie to grant all of our wishes. Instead, prayer is this way to exercise our full purpose and potential as human beings made in the image of God. I love what Wright says there, that it's a part of our stewardship. That is deep water, right? That prayer is a part of our stewardship to partner with God in his purposes for all of creation, that that's what we're participating in as we pray. I don't know about y'all, but like I got some synapses like just straight burning up, like, you know, like what? As this overlap of heaven and earth meet, for those of you that have been around last year, we went through a series the entire year on the kingdom of God. And we talked about how the kingdom of God in the New Testament is this idea of this place where heaven and earth are overlapping. And we are residents of this overlap now as Christians. And that one day that overlap will be fully overtaken and new creation will be made. And in prayer, Right here, right now, in this partial overlap, 
in the age in between before the final age, we're partaking in this divine stewardship of that process of new creation happening. My grandfather, who was a devoutly Christian man, after I became a Christian at the end of his life, he would say, and we were separated by many hundreds of miles and we didn't live in the same state, he would say, I'll meet you in the throne room of God. It took me a while to like conceptualize what he was saying. I just thought, oh, okay, it's just some kooky little old man Christian saying, sure, Grandpa, meet you in the throne room. You know, like I don't think it really sunk in. Eventually, probably after his death, I started to reflect on more of what he said. And I thought, wow, there is this spiritual reality where he and I, in very real and yet spiritual ways, can actually meet together in this overlapping place of prayer. My synapses started to burn out again. And so Jesus is teaching here that prayer is not only us exercising this stewardship in God's creation, but it's also to have intimate communion with God and to partner with him in the exercise of bringing about beauty and love to the world through us. This is what prayer is. So the next time you go to pray and you feel begrudging or you feel like oh I don't want to do this or oh this is stale I don't know what to say I just and it feels like a chore just stop for a moment and realize that Jesus invites you to participate in a stewardship of the new creation that might give you something to pray about first Peter chapter 3 prayer for the Christian is to be accompanied with righteousness 1 Peter chapter 3, in verse 10, I'll just start in verse 8. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. You could just chew on that verse for the rest of your life, right? Like, we're never arriving there. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Because of this, you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is is against those who do evil. Does God literally have eyes? Does he literally have ears? How big are those ears if he has them? This is called anthropomorphism. So biblical writers use language that we're familiar with to describe God. Isaiah does this in a passage that's familiar to some of us in Isaiah 59. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear, but his face is set against you. Right? The New Testament is very clear. God is spirit. Does he have a face and an arm and ears? No. But the writers, inspired by God's Holy Spirit, are using language that we can connect with. And here, the writer is talking about the fact that our prayers are heard by God in a special way when it's accompanied with righteous living. 
But when we do evil, God turns his face against us. It's not that he is unable or that God is somehow tone deaf to certain people's frequencies, but that righteousness is to accompany our prayer. James in chapter 5 would say, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for each other so that you may be healed because the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Implying that the prayer of an unrighteous person is not powerful or effective. And so as disciples of Jesus, for us to practice biblical prayer, we have to align our lives with Jesus' teachings. We got to obey him and live righteously. In fact, Peter, just before this passage, would also say that our prayers can be hindered if we aren't living in a loving and considerate manner. Specifically, he's talking to husbands in their treatment of their wives. He says, husbands, live in a loving and considerate way towards your wife so that your prayers aren't hindered, implying that our prayers can be hindered by how we act. Again, it's not a slot machine, right? God desires for us to be like him and to be holy. Have you ever prayed and wondered why does it seem like God is not hearing my prayers? Why is God not answering my prayers? Perhaps a good place for us to look is are we living righteously? Are we following Jesus and trying to obey him? This is often a great place for us to begin our prayer life. You may be sitting here this morning going, I've never really prayed ever before. I don't know what to do. I don't know that I even want to pray. A great place to begin is to repent, to live a righteous life, to start cutting off and gouging out that which causes you to live unrighteously, to confess and talk to God about our sin, about our unrighteousness, as well as other spiritual people around us, and to get help. The last place I want to end here is in Luke 18. Go back over to Luke. Jesus taught a parable about prayer. And he says in verse 1, Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Have you ever given up on a prayer? I've given up on prayers before, only to come back to them, only to give up again, only to come back to them. He says, in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary and give me a video game remote controller. For some time, he refused. And I stood my ground. But finally, he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, 
When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? I love this parable because it challenges me to not give up. There's this tension, right? Jesus says, if wicked people who don't even fear God will eventually cave in, how much more God who loves you grant you your justice? And yet, he says, don't give up because it might not come at first. We may go to our graves praying the same prayers, never seeing them answered in the way that we desire. Jesus says, one, don't give up, and two, trust. Believe, have faith that God will set things right, that justice will come. It's interesting that he doesn't use the parable of my five-year-old son asking for video game controllers, right? This is the slot machine thing, right? This is so tricky. Sometimes we think, God's not answering my prayer. Well, we're just asking for selfish things like video game controllers. And they get more sophisticated and expensive as we get older, but they're just selfish prayers. We just want life to be better. We want more money. We want better health. Most of the time, it's not so that we can help other people and make their life better. It's just because we want less suffering. That's not the parable Jesus uses here. He uses a story of a widow who in this time, in this day and age, and even still today, would have been some of the most vulnerable people groups in all of society. A woman who had no upward mobility, had no opportunity for employment, who had no male figure to provide for her, would have been incredibly vulnerable and at risk just to survive. And this is the story that Jesus chooses to use to talk about prayer. He says, if that woman goes to the city judge and says something has been done to me that is unjust and you should make it right, and he says this wicked man who doesn't even care about God eventually is going to take care of her just because he doesn't want to get worn out and nagged to death, isn't God going to provide justice not video game controllers, but justice. That God will right wrongs. Again, going back to our previous comment about forgiveness. We're going to get wronged. And if we're honest, we're going to wrong other people too. Hopefully it's unintentionally, and hopefully we repent quickly and ask for forgiveness. But we are going to be wronged not all of those wrongs are going to be made right quickly. And ultimately, the story of the Scriptures is that all wrongs won't be made right until the very end, when God judges the world. Jesus says, don't give up. Your justice will come. Some of us go through great trials and suffering in life. We experience death and loss and disease and decay and divorce and broken families. We experience war. We experience tragedy on levels that are hard to imagine sometimes. And yet, it is a common human experience happening every day that this planet is here. And Jesus says, don't give up. 
So as we take the first couple of months as a church family to focus in on spiritual disciplines, let's become a people who pray and don't give up. For some of the microchurch pastors or for all of the microchurch pastors, we're committing this year to pray every night together with our spouse or our roommates. And we have a little devotional guide that helps us through some of our prayer. But we want to become a people who are committed to praying and who don't give up. We want to become a people who embrace the forgiveness of God and are willing to forgive others. And we want to invite the rest of the church to do the same. A practical little exercise and practice that I want to leave you with for this week. Pray with someone you've never prayed with before. Pray with someone you've never prayed with before. It could be someone here in this church family. It could be someone much, much older than you. It could be someone much, much younger than you. It could be someone in a different city or state. It could be a relationship that you want to take a step towards reconciling with. Pray with someone that you haven't prayed with before. Next week, we're going to discuss the spiritual discipline of fasting. And the week after that, we're going to have a church-wide fast together. How many of you guys have ever fasted before from food? How many of you guys like fasting from food? One person, two people, okay? Again, God bless you. Kudos to you. The rest of us, we're going to try to follow your lead. I hate fasting. I hate it. I hate it, but I love it. But I hate it. But I want to love it. But I hate it. So God is working on all of us as we learn to become like him. I'm excited to be able to go through this series together, to focus in on spiritual disciplines, and hopefully to see our lives individually and collectively change and be transformed. Spiritual disciplines, this is the thing, right, that I want to caution us with, that spiritual disciplines don't become an end in of themselves, that we're not just doing these things because that makes us great Christians or that makes us get what we want. It's, again, some sort of slot machine exercise. No, spiritual disciplines are about transformation. We do spiritual disciplines for the end of change, to become more like Jesus and less like ourselves. And in doing that, we're able to commune with God more intimately and be who he has created us to be more authentically. Let's pray together. 